This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. It's the Media Buzz Meter with Howard Kurtz. I have been getting engagement, uh, interaction, maybe you would even call it traction, on something having nothing to do with politics, uh, just something that I've done for fun. About a week ago, I think I've mentioned this once before, I made up a list of what I thought were the best pure harmony songs from classic rock, being a classic rock fanatic. And I had the Beatles and the Eagles and uh, there's a Grateful Dead song um, and America and let's see, uh, Crosby, Stills and Nash, of course, one per group because with the Beatles, you could do 50 songs. So I posted it and I got a lot of feedback and then I decided to revise and expand the list. So I put it up yesterday on my personal Facebook page and in my personal Twitter page if you want to look at it. Because I got bombarded with really good suggestions. And so I've added the Mamas and the Papas, great harmony group. California Dreaming was the song. Simon and Garfunkel. I mean, I just completely smacked myself in the head and turned out their very first song, Sounds of Silence, or the first one that they were known for nationally. Uh, Poco, which isn't much remembered uh, these days, but was a great sort of country rock band, Crazy Love. And Maybe the first harmony group we were all aware of, of a certain age, is the Beach Boys. Uh, and there I picked In My Room. And, so, you know, a lot of people wrote in and say, you know, they really wanted songs they liked better. And there's lots of Beach Boys songs that I like better, but that one was the most interplay of voices. I mean, with the Beatles, I picked Because. It's not my favorite Beatles song. It's not in the top 30, but it, the entire thing is just essentially them singing a cappella, John, Paul, and George. So now people are reacting, well, why didn't you include the Hollies? Well, because I was limiting it to 10, the top 10. A lot of groups that almost made the cut. Or, you know, I, I, it should have been this song instead of that song. It should have been Sweet Blue, Judy Blue Eyes for, of course, we still Nash. And I agree, that was my runner-up. But it wasn't quite as good as Helplessly Hoping when it came to Pure Harmony. You know, it was objective, of course. It's just been fun to do. Now... Can you believe that Cold Fusion is back? I mean, what was it, like 35 years ago where suddenly, you know, there was a lot of hype about Cold Fusion and then it was sort of like, never mind, we can't do it. So now the Department of Energy saying yesterday uh, that it conducted an experiment where for a few billionths of a second, the scientists were able to do something with cold fusion, which of course would be great and solve all our energy problems, where there was a net gain in energy. But then comes the caveat, like what do you do with it? And apparently, you know, to make this into a commercially viable situation, it's going to take decades. So cold fusion, back in the news, at least briefly. Uh, you know Lily Collins, the actress um, who most recent series on Netflix is Emily in Paris, and she plays this American who gets sent by the home office to Paris and has to deal with the sort of snobby and fashionable French culture. Well, she 
went on TV and admitted to stealing. That, at least, was the clickbait headline in the Huffington Post. So I clicked, because I like the show. And she's on with Colbert, and she tells Stephen Colbert, this is, you know, you'll, you'll see how this gets deflated, that she, oh, accidentally, yeah, that's what they all say, um, stole a copy of In Pickleball magazine and did not return it. <gasps> Which my first reaction was, there's a Pickleball magazine? She said, by the way, I totally didn't even realize I had to pay $8 for this. Pickleball magazine costs $8, okay. Uh, she was on her way out of the store. Her husband was getting a new racket. I just took it. You stole this, said Colbert. I thought it was free. Are you a criminal on the run? It was worth it, she said. Well, okay, so uh, will she be prosecuted? Well, the parent company of this magazine says, Pickleball is the height of fashion, so we have no hard feelings and understand fully why Lily Collins would covet the issue so strongly. I don't think they're going to go after the eight bucks, the way Elon Musk is going after eight bucks. Uh, by the way, the uh, Harry and Meghan Netflix series, which I've talked about the other day, Netflix says 28 million members stream the first three episodes within four days of their release. What? I mean, this thing is phenomenally popular, unbelievably popular. I guess there's just a lot of royal fever here in the colonies. Um, interesting note here, uh, because I sometimes take note of the fact when certain people who have been longtime defenders of Donald Trump say something, as Larry Kudlow did a week ago uh, against the former president. So Stuart Varney, I think, was a big Trump supporter on Fox Business, and he's since criticized the foreign president on occasion. But he had Elaine Chow on, on his Fox Business show, uh, former uh, labor secretary. And he said, Madam Secretary, welcome. I want to talk to you about inflation. But first, Donald Trump attacked you on the grounds of your ethnicity. I wonder if you'd like to take this moment to respond. Remember what Trump, in the course of ripping her husband, Mitch McConnell, said, and his lovely wife, Coco Chow, which I didn't even get, but that was the nickname he gave her. And she kind of deflected and said, well, the president says many things. I don't make a point of responding to his comments. And Varney said, okay, I'll leave it there. We were all appalled at what he said. And it's up to you what you say in response. Story number one, the Sam Bankman-Fried saga. Well, everybody knows this guy's name now, right? If I had asked you all five weeks ago, you know, nobody would have known the name, and that includes me. So the crypto king, the disgraced crypto king, as the media describe him, the fallen crypto king, um, is now under federal indictment. As you will recall in the saga, uh, he was arrested by authorities in the Bahamas at the request of the U.S. Monday night, and the timing was not coincidental. He was supposed to testify at this congressional hearing yesterday, and there's no way the feds were going to allow that. So they sent the unsealed indictment, which I talked about yesterday. It was unsealed yesterday. And it turns out, according to this indictment, his lies stretch back to the very beginning, looking here at a New York Times write-up, from the very time that he founded FTX, this now bankrupt company, in 2019, federal authorities say widespread fraud, used his customers' deposits to finance his political activities, buy lavish real estate, invest in other companies. Yeah, it's a lot of fun 
when you're using other people's money, isn't it, Mr. Bankman Freed? So now everybody is in on this, right? So the Justice Department has gone after him. The SEC has filed charges against him. The Commodities Futures Trading Commission has filed charges against him. Um, the latter two, of course, are, are civil suits. But where were they all before? Well, look, the whole idea of the crypto industry, which a lot of people think is just a giant shell game, and which has been badly, badly hurt by the collapse of FTX, um, is that it was separate from the federal regulatory system. So you can't completely beat up on them. But on the other hand, when they wanted to investigate, suddenly they were able to, uh, you know, after he committed the crimes. But, if, you know, if he was committing the crimes back in 2019, it is somewhat of a failure of our regulatory system. So the indictment says he repeatedly lied to customers, investors, and lenders about the whole structure of this empire, how he handled the billions of dollars that this company was worth. And it comes at a time when, you know, as I say, the whole industry is being rocked. You know what it is? Nobody, there are no heroes here. Nobody looks good. Everybody looks horrible. Because you had... Um, all these places that took money, illicit money, as it turns out, though they didn't necessarily know that at the time, from Sam Bankman-Fried. That starts with um, the Democratic Party and Joe Biden. He was the second biggest donor in the last news cycle. He also was sort of secretly giving money to the Republicans. We still don't know how much. And one of the odd things about the indictment is it doesn't name while saying he defrauded the U.S. and the Federal Election Commission, it doesn't name any of the uh, political committees or candidates that got this money, even though we know separately, as I said, that he was literally, after George Soros, the second biggest donor to the Dems. Um, and at the same time, you had liberal causes that took money from Sam Bankman-Fried. You had media organizations that took money from Sam Bankman-Fried, including Semaphore, including Vox, and a whole bunch of others. Now, are they going to give that money back? I haven't heard anybody, and, or what about the political candidates? I haven't heard anybody announce, well, you know, this is dirty money, this is tainted money, we didn't know this at the time, so we're giving it back. Nobody wants to give the money back, but that money actually belonged to other people. And in this bankruptcy proceeding, um, they are trying to uh, try to at least return some of the $8 billion that individual investors lost just because their crypto money happened to be held by FTX. Um, so he goes to court yesterday in the Bahamas, I guess. Uh, oh, he's dressed in a suit and a white shirt, not this usual, you know, disheveled uh, T-shirt and shorts thing. His parents were there. There are Stanford University professors. They may have some liability here. He was denied bail. And that's a smart decision. I mean, can you think of a guy who's a better flight risk? So he's in a jail in the Bahamas for now. Uh, New York Times says, he. This, I love this passive uh, formulation. His arrest was a stunning fall for, from grace for an executive who was once described as a modern-day John Pierpont Morgan and became a darling of big investors in Silicon Valley and a prolific Democratic Party donor. Okay, who described him? It was the media who did this. It was the media who lionized him. It was the business press who fell down. Cover of Forbes, cover of Fortune. Is this the next Warren Buffett? No due diligence whatsoever. 
no looking into how this kid, he's now 30, was able to, you know, have his multi-billion dollar company. Just, you know, everybody just love, and everybody contributed to the myth, everybody in the media, that is. Contributing to the myth of, oh, you know what, he's just this sort of genius, uh, he just figured out how to do this. He's kind of like this outlaw. And, oh, he lives so simply. He sleeps at the office in a beanbag chair. All this stuff. Meanwhile, he's buying up all these other companies. And he's buying up real estate. I mean, everybody looks bad. Most of all, him. He's the new Bernie Madoff. And the danger here, I think is that, oh, he's just one rogue actor, when I think serious questions have been made about the entire, uh, questions have been raised about the entire crypto industry. Uh, here's the SEC complaint. Bankman Free was orchestrating a massive, years-long fraud, diverting billions of dollars out of the trading platform's customer funds for his own personal benefit and to help grow his crypto empire. So where were you, Securities and Exchange Commission? Now, the guy who was brought in to clean up this mess, whose name is John Ray, was the same guy who was brought in, what, this is now two decades ago, to clean up the mess at Enron. And what he said at the hearing yesterday on the Hill was that this FTX collapsed because of, quote, the absolute concentration of control in the hands of a small group of grossly inexperienced and unsophisticated individuals. Oh, so he wasn't a genius after all. And he said, look, when I was looking into Enron, I said that the people who perpetrated the Enron crimes were highly sophisticated. Remember, they went out and they got the accounting firm Arthur Anderson, uh, which ended up being implicated in the whole mess, but at least there was an accounting firm. Whereas, says Ray... FTX executives engaged in, quote, really just old-fashioned embezzlement. Even with most failed companies, we have a fair roadmap of what happened, he testified. We are dealing with a literal paperless bankruptcy. It makes it difficult to track. And one last point on this, as I, may, as I drive home the overarching point that Everybody who had any contact with this guy or took money from this guy or failed to scrutinize this guy just ends up looking like they fell down on the job. The statement that he was going to make, had he testified, had the feds not intervened and gotten him jailed in the Bahamas, I suddenly saw a story saying well, reporters obtained it. Well, how do you think reporters obtained it? They, you know, they got it from this guy. And he wanted to say at the very beginning, I want to begin by formally stating under oath, I effed up. I know it doesn't mean much to say I'm sorry. And so I'm dedicating as much of myself as I can to doing right by customers. When all is said and done, I'll judge myself primarily by one metric, whether I have eventually been able to make customers whole. If I fail our customers in this regard, I have failed myself. So he's basically saying, look, you know, he's like... OJ, you know, searching for the real killer. You know, I'm going to look into this. I'm going to get their money back. Um, and I didn't, you know, I made mistakes. I was sloppy. I should have done this. I should have done that. But I wasn't a crook. Yeah, well, the um, Justice Department has a different view of whether you were a crook. And that will be tested in a court of law when he eventually gets extradited to the U.S., 
Hey, let's pause right there. The buzz meter continues right after this. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Okay, number two. Yesterday, President Biden, with a big ceremony outside the White House, signed into law a bipartisan law legalizing same-sex marriage. Uh, It's called the Respect for Marriage Act. And a little digression here. It would be good if the White House learned how to stage these events better because when he actually sat down, remember, they had planned this for days, and you knew that the president was going to make a big deal out of it. And by the way, this would not have been possible without the votes of 12 Republican senators who went along with the Democrats in getting this bill passed, and 39 Republican House members, who, while certainly a minority of the party, also gave a bipartisan cast to the House passage of this bill. But when it came time where he sits down at this desk to sign the thing, the shot we saw was a bunch of people standing up in front of him with their phones. Like, the White House couldn't provide a clear shot. And Biden signed it. He doesn't seem to do the thing where he signs it with 19 different pens and then hands them out there, but he signed it with one pen. And then he gave the pen to a somewhat stunned-looking Kamala Harris, who had spoken before him. And, you know, he... I, it seemed to me he was ad-libbing. Maybe some of it was on prompter. But he said, today is a good day. It was on the South Lawn. And hundreds of lawmakers, gay rights activists, and guests were gathered there. A day America takes a vital step toward equality, toward liberty, justice, not just for some, but for everyone, toward creating a nation where decency, dignity, and love are recognized, honored, and protected. Now, that sounds scripted. But then he talked about how he had gotten a lot of heat himself as vice president uh, 10 years ago, 2012. He went on Meet the Press, and he said that he was for gay marriage. He wasn't supposed to do that because Barack Obama was going to come out and say that he was for gay marriage, and he totally, I mean, Obama had every right to be utterly pissed at this. Well, now it's being portrayed as, ah, isn't that funny? And, uh, you know, I did, you know, he did the right thing because he spoke out. It wasn't a question of speaking out. It's whether you you let your boss go first. In any event, remember in 2008, Barack Obama didn't campaign for gay marriage. Hillary Clinton didn't campaign for gay marriage. They probably favored it, but they couldn't say so. By 2012, they were willing to say so. The good news is that more and more Americans come to understand what is it all this about. It's a simple proposition. Who do you love? And will you be loyal to the person you love? And that's what people are finding out. It's what all marriages at their root are about whether they're marriages of lesbians or gay men or heterosexuals. And he said, yeah, I got into trouble. Um, the law and the love of defense strike a blow. And now that I read this, some of this does seem, seem rather scripted. Uh, against hate, and nothing wrong with that, against hate in all its forms. That's why this law matters to every single American, no matter who you are or who you love. And um, the president specifically talked about what he called the extremist Supreme Court majority in striking down Roe that, led, that 
that paved the way for this, because if the high court had not done that, you wouldn't have this, because you would think that the high court, everybody was stunned at the time, would not knock down or return to the states, as they framed it, um, a 50-year precedent, which was regarded as a constitutional right under the original 1973 Roe decision. And he specifically cited the concurring opinion of Clarence Thomas, who said, well, now we may have to go back, uh, or we do have to go back and revisit some of these rights that we took for granted. And so speaking about people who are out on this early, I mean, uh, when the Vice President Harris got this pen, she had performed marriages as California's Attorney General as early as 2004, when I think public opinion in the country was still largely against it. I mean, there's been a real evolution here. Um, and so this is not just an achievement that certainly um, is very popular with the LGBTQ community, but it's a bipartisan achievement. It's another law that Joe Biden was able to get passed that people said he wouldn't be able to do, and he did it. Let's move on to number three. Elon Musk is no longer, according to calculations, the world's richest man. He's still pretty bleeping rich. But the problem is that Tesla stock has been going down. And some of that may have to do with problems with Tesla. Some of that may have to do with the fact that more companies, and this was going to happen anyway, are getting into the game, the business, I should say, of building electric cars so Tesla will have competition. But I think also, because Musk has become so political and so controversial, relentlessly controversial, as the new owner of Twitter, I think other people who might ordinarily buy Tesla cars are like not wanting to be associated with his brand. And I think there's something to that, that hurting Tesla stock as well. But there's a lot of factors here. In any event, um, the Washington Post, at the time, let me just back up here so this will make sense. I noted yesterday in describing the series of smoking gun um, testimony or documents in, quote, the Twitter files, which, by the, by the way, there's no story on this in the New York Times. There's no story on this except for one paragraph, which I'm going to refer to, in the Washington Post. There's no stories on this on the other networks. Um, but it is smoking gun stuff. So one of the Tesla... There I go again. Okay, one of the Twitter executives at the time that Donald Trump was permanently banned. It's a woman named Navaroli. I don't have her first name right here. And she actually was interviewed by the Post. And she's the one who said Donald Trump's tweets were not, the safety unit has found that Donald Trump's tweets on the morning of January 8th, 2021 were not inflammatory or inciting violence and Twitter didn't care and says, okay, we're, we're throwing it out. We're ignoring all these people. But in an interview with the Washington Post, Navaroli, who's black, um, said the first time she thought about this issue as one of safety and free expression, she was a middle school student 
walking with her mother to a grocery store in Florida, when a man swerved his truck onto the sidewalk, shouting racial slurs at them and demanding they go back to where they came from. After the police arrived, they refused to file charges, saying no one had been hit, and that this guy's free speech was protected by the First Amendment. Now, what the Washington Post does have uh, today is a column by conservative radio host Hugh Hewitt. So he at least was allowed to speak out on this. And he talked about how Jack Dorsey testified on the Hill that we didn't shadow ban any conservatives and we didn't um, discriminate against conservatives. And Hewitt says, well, these may not have been lies in Dorsey's mind, but they are deceptive in reading about these latest revelations. Um, and he talks about some of the conservatives, Dan Bongino and others, who were, whose tweets were suppressed through all kinds of mechanisms, all kinds of tools that Twitter has. He says, conservatives were led to believe they had equal access to the Twitter audience. People and organizations on the right invested time, effort, and sometimes money to craft messages in the belief that the results could be read on a level playing field. In truth, any message out of favor with Twitter management or somehow offensive to lower-level content moderators might find only a small fraction of the intended readership. The Twitter reporting has met with ferocious pushback, including on the app itself, because the company handpicked the journalist it wanted for the task. Independent-minded iconoclasts Matt Taibbi, Mike Schellenberger, Michael Schellenberger, and Barry Weiss, who, with her wife, Nellie Bowles, also formerly of the New York Times, are, are putting together this new company, as I mentioned, now called the Free Press. So we don't know what terms may have been imposed on them, um, but I would prefer, says Hewitt, if Musk made every document available to everyone like his tweets. But don't let the attacks stop you from considering the reporting. Imagine the hours you would invest preparing a lecture or a sermon or even an ad if you were told it might be heard by 1,000 or 10,000 or 100,000 people, only after you finished it, you discover your time's been wasted and you can never get that back because your message was blocked or filtered. Finally, there are folks, I raise my hand here, who defended Twitter to our conservative friends and followers. Over and over, I and others on the center right knocked down talk of behind-the-scenes activists busy silencing dissidents from the approved party line. Turns out, the paranoid folks about Twitter were proved right, and those of us who dismissed their concerns, wrong, wrong, wrong. Try getting anyone on the right to believe assurances of good faith from big tech again. And by the way, so there was one paragraph in a story in the Washington Post that said, conservative journalists, Barry Weiss and Mataibi. And then it was stealth edited out. It took out the word conservatives because they're not conservative. They're just not as, as woke liberal uh, as some people want them to be. They both have a long history of being liberal. And maybe you would say now they're more moderate liberal. I think they both now try to hold both sides accountable. And yet that got them labeled conservative. Now, here's a related New York Times story. Man, Elon Musk shaking up Twitter's legal department disbanding the safety council, which I mentioned yesterday. And he's trying to save money. So according to several people familiar with internal conversations, um, they've instructed employees not to pay vendors because they think there's going to be litigation. They have not paid rent. Twitter has not paid rent on its San Francisco headquarters or any of its offices for weeks. 
Twitter's also refused to pay a $197,000 bill for private charter flights made the week that Musk took over. There's a lawsuit on that. Twitter's leaders are also talking about denying severance payments to thousands of people who've been laid off. I remember him saying, if you're willing to work really hard, fine. If not, you'll get three-month severance. And now, less than that, or no severance at all? That seems pretty unfair. So, you know, the New York Times goes on to say his reign has been characterized by chaos and resignations and layoffs. Um, There's this guy whose name is Alex Spiro. He was Musk's personal lawyer. Musk brought him in and put him in charge of the legal department. You'd figure he'd have a loyalist there, right? Also, he's a noted criminal defense lawyer and has successfully defended Elon Musk. Well, he got fired. And why did he get fired? I actually don't blame Musk for this because Alex Spiro knew, but Musk did not, that Twitter had on the payroll James Baker, Jim Baker, the former FBI general counsel, hugely controversial figure who ended up leaving after an internal investigation, leak investigation, who was involved in the Russiagate probe, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. He didn't tell Musk that Baker was on the Twitter payroll, but he knew. Pretty incredible. All right. So we'll see if he can get away with stiffing all these people. Oh, by the way, Twitter has laid off its kitchen staff and begun to list office supplies, uh, kitchen equipment, and electronics as being up for auction. Do you get the impression that Elon is really scrambling for money? Hey, let's pause right there. The buzz meter continues right after this. This episode is supported by FX's Clipped, the scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill. FX's Clipped, streaming June 4th, only on Hulu. Okay, now, let me move on to number four. This is the Wall Street Journal poll out today. Ron DeSantis, nationally, beating Donald Trump 52% to 38%. But Trump beating Mike Pence 63% to 29%. Biden beating Trump 49 to 43 in a general election, undecided 12 And I've seen another poll that said, I don't know if the journal had this, that DeSantis would beat Biden. Here's my problem with the poll. I mean, it's a perfectly valid poll. It's the Wall Street Journal. But Donald Trump isn't running against declared candidate Ron DeSantis. He's running against the idea of a Ron DeSantis candidacy. By which I mean, you know, you can look at DeSantis and his record in Florida. He's a real guy with real accomplishments and real controversies. But he hasn't taken a punch. He hasn't gotten in the arena. And when you're in the arena and you start getting roughed up, these pre-election, pre-primary polls don't mean anything. He may prove to be a great candidate who will appeal to Republicans who want Trumpism without the baggage, or he may prove to have a glass jaw. We just don't know. In any event, news from the New York Times. Donald Trump is working the phones for Kevin McCarthy, who's having trouble putting together a majority Um, to become House Speaker because he's got a lot of conservatives who are trying to block him. Uh, The guy who, you know, Kevin McCarthy has been loyal to, has gone to Mar-a-Lago, Trump calls him Mike Kevin. He has called um, 
such people as some of the more outspoken folks. Remember Andy Biggs, uh, who shows up on those uh, texts to Meadows that I read yesterday on the podcast, is running against him. Um, And I think it's fascinating that, in effect, Donald Trump is trying to whip votes for Kevin McCarthy, but hasn't had that much success as far as we can tell. The top demand of some of these ultra-conservative lawmakers, a team that includes Marjorie Taylor Greene, although she has allied herself with McCarthy, um, has been that he agree in advance that there could be a snap vote at any time to, to get rid of him. Well, what self-respecting politician would do that? It's like signing your death warrant. And so he can only lose like five votes because that's the margin. So even Trump, according to this New York Times piece, has had little success with the hard right faction. Um, but it also raised the question, if it's not going to be McCarthy, who is it going to be? I don't think Andy Biggs can get a majority. Uh, so according to people close to Trump, he's not entirely sold on the idea that McCarthy would be a strong speaker, but he thinks it's better than the alternative, which would include the idea that a moderate who can draw some votes from Democrats might win the speakership, or a bunch of Republicans defect and the Democrats elect the speaker. Obviously, nobody in the Republican Party wants that. 36 lawmakers voted against McCarthy in a secret ballot last month. Four have already said publicly they will oppose him on the House floor. He needs to get to 218. Uh, McCarthy telling reporters, we've been making a lot of progress. I think people are in a much better place. I think we'll find a place to get together. So it's um, a bit of a soap opera. And look, he has been doing things to cater to the right, including you know going down to the border and saying he would uh, bring impeachment proceedings against Homeland Security Secretary Mayorkas, promising Marjorie Greene uh, prime committee assignments. She was stripped by the Democrats, as you may recall. Andy Biggs wrote an essay saying he's running as a protest candidate. And Matt Gates is also against Kevin McCarthy because we don't trust Kevin McCarthy to deliver on any changes to the rules or promises. Okay. And by the way, I would be remiss if I didn't tell you that Donald Trump is now suing, he had threatened to do this, he has sued the Pulitzer Prize board, alleging that the prizes uh, awarded to the Washington Post and New York Times for reporting about the Russiagate scandal should be retracted. And the problem is that the Pulitzer board already looked into this and said that there's nothing in anything that these two newspapers submitted that can be found to be inaccurate. You may not like that they got these prizes, but you got to show that it was inaccurate. And interestingly, uh, I guess Fox got to look at the complaint and said it's irrelevant uh, whether or not the reporters at the time, it's immaterial was the word, um, knew that the Russian collusion story was propagating political disinformation. Just irrelevant. But I think the relevant question is, does the reporting hold up? Remember, this was a legitimate investigation by Bob Mueller. Yes, it is true. No collusion was proven by either Trump himself or his campaign, or at least it wasn't prosecuted. There was this question about, could you even test it with a sitting president? Nevertheless, that's where you have it. Okay, number five. So a bunch of series are being canceled on HBO Max. This is the beginning of the end of HBO Max as a place for original content, in my view, because 
in the merger with Discovery, they want to save money. They're desperate to save money. So there's a series called The Nevers that was canceled halfway through its first season by HBO, uh, pulled from streaming. And there's the recently canceled series Westworld. This is all according to Variety. And some of these may end up on other platforms because they've already been shot. Now, Westworld was canceled by HBO after four seasons. So you could say, well, maybe it ran its course. But basically... You know, this is, again, I mean, a huge amount of money was spent uh, doing Westworld, and HBO is just trying to get out of the original content business because of this merger. They've got to save, they're looking to save $3.5 billion. So Westworld started Evan Rachel Wood and Ed Harris and a whole bunch of other people. Nevertheless, it is gone. Now, HBO still has a few big-budget dramas, including House of the Dragon, Euphoria, but basically, this is HBO's unofficial announcement that it is so determined to save money that it's just getting rid of shows, shows that otherwise, you know, may have found a good audience on the streaming channel. But I don't know. I think it's basically going to be shown to used to show old movies and stuff like that. And that's a shame, but you know what? You got to make money in this business. And if Netflix can make can get twenty eight million people to download Harry and Meghan, well, Netflix is laughing all the way to the bank. And if HBO Max is cutting all these series, it means that it's gotten too expensive. Well, thank you, and I'm going to say this every time because unlike in television, where I can't go on about all these different things, whether it's my classic rock uh, obsession or anything else. Uh, I don't have to hit commercials. I can share this time with you. I appreciate your sharing it with me. Uh, if you're not already a subscriber, Apple, iTunes, and Amazon Music are two good places to do, do it. You get it without the ads, so you don't have to listen to this annoying plug by me. And we're back here tomorrow with more BuzzMeter. Listen ad-free on Fox News Podcasts and via Apple Podcasts, and Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on Amazon Music. Listen to the all-new Brett Bear podcast featuring Common Ground, in-depth talks with lawmakers from opposite sides of the aisle, along with all your Brett Bear favorites like his all-star panel and much more. Available now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts.